Hey, everyone. If you like what we do, make sure to give us a like and a follow and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are everywhere. That way, we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And boy, we've got an episode for you today. We have reviews for Close Enough, Apollo 10 and a half, A Space Age Childhood, and yes, as we teased last time, the Ghibli journey continues with Grave of the Fireflies. But first, before we dive too deep into sadness, We've got some trailers to talk about. So Cameron, what do you got? Well, you know, those rumblings we talked about last time about Netflix, kind of like the rumors are that Netflix is regressing backwards in terms of how open they were to make animated shows and films that, you know, normal channels and the theatrical industry was not interested in. Yeah, when they talked about putting more franchise fodder in front of us, I think we should have known when Marmaduke was released this week, or at least the trailer for it, and it's coming out next month. It was supposed to come out around 2020, and then, you know, the pandemic happened, and now Netflix owns it, and somehow this film got Pete Davidson and J.K. Simmons and David Kushner. So, oh man, what happened with this movie? Who thought this was a good idea? Oh, now, hold, now hold on. I'll say this. On paper, a Marmaduke Duke animated movie makes a lot of sense. What doesn't make sense is why all of these characters look like CGI stick figures. Oh, gosh. I, from what I could find in terms of information of this movie, that this is the studio's first animation project from Storyberry. And, well, it sure looks like it, and not in a good way. These designs are ugly. Just some of the worst CGI I've seen in a while. And the body proportions are almost, like, in that same realm of jokes of, like, you make fun of, like, the One Piece creator's way of designing characters, or, like, uh, how Fairy Tale has, like, the same female blonde protagonist but with just like a slightly different blonde hairstyle this is what that looks like this is that kind of notion where it's just like everyone's either as thin as a twig or someone took way too much fascination from how pixar designed their mother characters (laughs) i I was gonna say that or gendy tartakovsky or yeah or butch hartman the way they portray the bottom half yeah it's like it doesn't work and it just looks like it, it just doesn't look good even in motion like it just looks ugly it's, it looks like first time animation and such and how about Barbara Duke himself he looks um he looks very doofy i like gray danes they are gigantic dogs but i love them but this one looks like he would just collapse and his bones would break due to how thin he is. The body proportions don't make sense. 
And the story, it looks like the trailer tried to shove like the entire story into the movie. And I'm kind like, it shouldn't be confusing to make a Marmaduke movie. He's going to compete in this big dog championship. Uh, okay. The trailer doesn't make it very clear how that happens or there's just too much going on. Uh, let's just move on. We're going to talk about it later in May because we are going to, of course, talk about the anime for the spring season, which I'm so happy we're going to talk about first before we get to that movie. Next up, we have the trailer for A24's Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, the now feature-length adventure of Marcel that is based off of the short film about a small shell that was voiced by Jenny Slate. This is one of the first projects that A24 has dipped their hands into with animation alongside has been hotel which we are getting like small little teases and sneak peeks of so it's interesting to see what a24 considers their brand for animation because well marcel definitely fits that brand i mean it looks cute it's this interesting mix of stop motion and documentary style filmmaking and it's about Marcel just trying to find their family and such. It looks really sincere and sweet. Something that, nothing against A24 and their brand, but sincere and sweet is not something I think of with A24. Yeah, it's funny. This feels like simultaneously on-brand and off-brand at the same time. Just kind of given the recent slate of A24 releases i don't know there's between this and everything ev everywhere all at once i'm kind of digging this more experimental direction that they're going in i would like to see them pick up or find more distinct animated features because it would definitely be on brand with them to pick ones that would fit their mood and such like marcel and the film itself looks adorable. That's really all I have about it. It just looks sweet. I can't wait to see it. I'm wondering how big of a release it is because that's the only thing I'm concerned about with A24. They tend to pick their movies about which ones get the bigger releases and which ones don't. I have a feeling this one's going to get a at least semi-wide release. I am kind of jealous of people who saw this trailer on the big screen over the weekend. It sounds like this has the potential to be a sleeper hit. And I'm also just really happy for Jenny Slate, who's kind of making a little bit of a comeback on the big screen. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to see this. And Dean Fleischer Camp, it seems like they've made a very adorable and much more further reaching animated film than most A24 films are. Because A24 films, as much as I'd like a good chunk of them, have a very pseudo-narrow audience. Not like the most closed-off and unapproachable films, but you know who their audience is. And then we got news over the week of G-Kids picking up a short film, or a mid-feature, as they describe it as for Summer Ghost. It came out last year and is the premier feature by Flat Studio. It is founded by Flat Studio and is the 
premier feature from Laundraw, a director who worked on stuff like I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. And it definitely like looks just kind of stunning and very ethereal. And he also worked on the illustrations for Josie the Tiger and the Fish, the uh, film from last year. Nice. Uh, I don't have much else to say. I'm curious to know how they are going to release this in theaters because it's only 40 minutes or so. Uh, I'm not paying a ticket to go to a movie theater for 40 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. As great as this teaser trailer looked, I'm pretty sure this is going to be one of those like digital exclusives unless there's like a second short that they can like double bill, which would be a first for a modern multiplex but still if they can get creative with with its theatric distribution then i'm all for it i was just gonna say like like so far this just looks amazing like the animation looks gorgeous it just seems like one of those movies that i would just instantly fall in love with yeah we'll have to see they're having a very busy summer because spring with a fortune favorites lady nikuko and then Later this month, Pompo the Cinephile comes out. And then they're also, you know, re-releasing Makoto Shinkai's films on Blu-ray, which is so good because a lot of his films are out of print and cost way too much money that no normal person would throw down. And they are re-releasing the TV specials that Miyazaki and Isao Takahata worked on with Go Panda Go. So they're doing pretty good and you know, sooner or later, we, we will hopefully get something for the Deer King and, and you owe. It would be nice to get some more news about those. Yeah, seriously. Oof. But speaking of Shinkai, he's releasing a new movie this year. Funny enough, on my mom's birthday. <laughs> well, in Japan. On November 11th, it is Suzume's Locking Up. On the other side of the door was time in its entirety 17 year old suzume's journey begins in a quiet town in kyushu when she encounters a young man who tells her i'm looking for a door what suzume finds is a single weathered door standing upright in the midst of ruins as though it was shielded from whatever catastrophe struck seemingly mesmerized by its power suzume reaches for the knob Doors begin to open one after another all across Japan, unleashing destruction upon any who are near. Suzume must close these portals to prevent further disaster. I mean, it's Makoto Shinkai. He's made a name for himself having these extremely visually stunning animated features, especially the skyscapes. I think there's even an entire book that's just environmental art from Makoto Shinkai's films. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, I have to look it up again. I saw it on Amazon the other day and I might pick it up. And yes, (laughs) I did see some snark from people saying like, oh, look, he's making your name again. And listen, I'm not going to say that filmmakers don't have their favorite storytelling beats, but I get it. Makoto Shinkai loves a couple of things. Vast skyscapes teen romance and stories about distance which is usually revolving around the distance between the lead characters whether it's growing apart vast distances apart or in your name's case through time 
<laughs> and yes, yeah, sometimes I would love to see Makoto Shinkai do something a little different with his storytelling, even though we also say the same thing about like Mamoru Hosoda with family or, you know, making another social media based film last year. And then, or it's like saying Hayao Miyazaki definitely loves talking about nature and how much he doesn't like war and how much he <laughs> loves flying. Yeah. So it's like, I get it. And plus the last time people saw Makoto Shinkai make something entirely different than what he usually makes, people hated it. Oh, you are all way too fickle for your own good. And it's not like I don't want to hear criticisms. It's just like, pick and choose your argument, please. I'm going to like safely assume G-Kids will pick this up. Now, whether they choose to release it in America at the very end of December or wait to release it as a 2023 film, we'll have to see. I think it hurt them a little that Bell was given a wider release way too late for its own good. Yeah, January compared to, when was it released in Japan? Like May or July? July. I get that part of that may have had to do with wanting to, you know, put out a high quality English language dub. But look at the way Funimation has put out their franchise films like Demon Slayer and like Jujutsu Jujutsu Kaisen. Kaisen. Yeah. Crunchyroll. But I get, you know, the dubbing process takes a little longer. So there's going to be some distance, but still. I think the problem is the fact that they have to deal with distribution copyright nonsense because I'm sure like they wanted to play in Japan first understandable nothing wrong with that but then it just seems to take forever and i don't want them to rush a dub out there just needs to be time for like if they want to compete in award season they have to unfortunately compete and play with the whole uh you shouldn't release anything before october because nothing matters before october (laughs) <laughs> i'm gonna do a little math here so bell was released in the states in january january yeah. was december six months from its domestic release in july if you want a movie from japan to be like competitive during award season you would have to release it in like april or may well the thing was the last time Hasoda got up was back in 2018 for mirai and that's because mirai had a June or so release had its first US release in October and then its wide release in November. So if G Kids wanted to compete with Suzume's locking up, they would need to find some deal to release it in the same month or next the month after. And that's just kind of tough. I you know, the dubbing industry is already in such a situation and we're just and a lot of our criticisms are just we are impatient we want to see these now because we're excited it's like you know new deal for dubbing and such we need something for that because you know everything going on with the animation and anime industry it's all a mess right now yeah it's a hot mess but back to suzume's locking up it looks great it the teaser is very mysterious and it's gorgeous. 
And maybe we'll see something like a work in progress at Annecy in two months. That would be nice. Hopefully they still do a virtual kind of event for that stuff. So we'll have to see. But for now, let's talk about the saddest animated movie ever. This is a long time coming. We are finally talking about Grave of the Fireflies. Now, the bad news is if you're kind of like us and going through a lot of these Ghibli movies for the first time, you'll notice this is the one that's not available on HBO Max with the rest of the filmography. And we'll kind of get into the details of that later. But for now, this is a film written and directed by Isao Takahata based on the 1967 semi-autobiographical short story of the same name by Akiyuki uh, Nosaka. This takes place in the final moments of World War II. 14-year-old Saita and his sister Setsuko are orphaned when their mother is killed during an air raid in Kobe, Japan. After falling out with their aunt, they move into an abandoned bomb shelter with no surviving relatives and their emergency rations depleted Saita and Setsuko struggle to survive. I'm going to let you start because this movie hit me like a freight train. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like a common joke with this movie that, well, not even a joke, just like a meme or a gag is that you watch this movie once because then you just cannot watch it again. It's way too depressing and extremely sad i've seen this film before it's been a real long time but that was always like the legend about grave of the fireflies it was like one of the first acclaimed animated films from japan that we got back during the big anime boom of the late 80s early 90s it was originally released by central park media and then you know and this was like before ghibli became a household name And then there was that slow, like, drip feed of, like, okay, we'll bring over my neighbor Totoro. We'll bring over Kiki's delivery service. And then the floodgates opened with Spirited Away, and everyone was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. So then it's like, okay, bring them all over then. Well, except for Ocean Waves and Only Yesterday. We're not going to even get into that again. <laughs> and the story is like upfront you about the fate of the two kids of this movie. They don't make it. I could be saying spoiler alert right now, but it happens within the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. Or not even the first five minutes, like the first minute, the brother passes away and then it goes back through time when the air raids were happening and he and his sister were like trying to survive like everyone else because like Miyazaki and Ghibli ever need to tell y'all war is a horrible horrible thing and I'm not even going to unpack on everything that happened with World War II there is so much just it's we're not getting into that we're here to talk about animation the one interesting thing about this movie is the response of what happens with the brother and sister leaving their relative's place after like maybe the 
at the halfway point of the movie? About halfway, yeah. Because you either understand why the boy does it, or you think the boy is a terrible, terrible character. Now, what's your take on it? I want to hear from you first. I kind of struggled with how I felt about this, because first of all, the film is very much through, through the child's eyes. So, you know, whether or not he was in the right, like the film definitely wants you to be on his side. However, I won't pretend like the aunt doesn't have a point in that, in that the children aren't really contributing much to the household. But on the other hand, she was acting a little overly harsh. It's complicated. These were hard times. It's like the brother does ask, well, what should I do? Our country has been leveled to the ground and there are constant air raids. What can I do without getting myself hurt or killed? There's definitely a lot of cultural context to how the boy thinks because there's a lot of pride involved and that is what happens. Like this movie is not about how the two survive. It's more of a, I guess, cautionary tale of letting pride get the best of you. It's like how Masaki Uwasa and Science Saru are fairly blunt about how they are not a fan of nationalism. Here, it's like the movie is all about how the brother thinks he can take care of his sister. And there are moments where like he struggles because everyone is struggling, but since he's not being part of the system of like the rations and what's going on with everyone else, he makes things challenging and worse for him. And then it's like at like that scene later on when he finds out firsthand when getting the money that Japan has surrendered, he is upset while everyone else is very, how you say, like defeated, like they're detached. From it. It's just like, well, this happened. We will try to rebuild. And that's really it. I mean, that's not really it. It's more it's that feeling of just feeling deflated, like all hope is gone. We can only try to rebuild from here. Yeah, it's like it's a sad story. And I think I do have issues with some people saying, oh, it's only a sad story. It's not a good story. It's just a sad one. And it's just like, oh, that's not fair. I don't think that's fair at all. I actually agree with that. There are moments of levity throughout this. Yes, it's a tragedy because this movie is really, if nothing else, the loss of innocence. But when the two do get time to breathe, those are genuinely warm moments of levity that really shouldn't be taken for granted. Yes, we kind of know that we are watching the the clock tick down until they pass, but it's the experience of watching them try to survive and to see like the cultural and political context of what was going on. And it was interesting to see how characters reacted to their actions. Like the farmer, of course, did not like the brother stealing from him. But the police officer that was dealing with that was like, hey, well, you beat the tar out of this kid. So that kind of looks like assault. And was on the kid's side. It's like he had sympathy for him for knowing what's going on. This is a terrible situation. 
are you really going to be just an interesting story? It's a very mature and granted, this isn't like the first animated feature to dabble in the post events of World War II because we also have like the Barefoot Gin films that show a much more graphic version of when the bomb drops. Ooh. Yeah, no, uh, heads up, like Discotech has both films on a, a single Blu-ray. Uh, just watch out. That's all I have to say about that. And it's a very somber story because you're just, the, the boy is just trying to survive. And he knows that it's like, He's letting his pride get in the way, but he, he thinks what he's doing is correct. Like there's been this notion recently, like as of last year, where people are like, well, I don't like that this character is unlikable in a way. And it's like, but that drives the conflict. I mean, there's definitely a right and a wrong way of making an unlikable or a very flawed and selfish character endearing. It's about execution, but it's also about the way it's framed. Like, I think because we know that this story can only go in one direction, I don't want to say it justifies his actions, but it would be understandable from his perspective. Like, again, the story is told through the mindset of the kids, and they're just trying to survive because the boy loses their mom very early on. And while this has nothing as graphic as the Barefoot Gin films, there are still some very dark scenes, like the whole like burning of the corpses and when the sister basically walks by a corpse on the beach. It's a very touching movie. I think some people got a little persnickety about it because it was, the first time I started hearing people push back against Graven of Fireflies was when the big YouTube content creation machine was in its early stages of like maybe 2011. Or so it was like that's when everyone was starting to try to make a career on YouTube. And a few reviews came out and were very unfavorable to the Grave of the Fireflies. All because it's like, well, it's more of a sad movie than a good movie. And it's just like, it's a very devastating film, though. Just watching these kids and just as time goes on, things get worse and worse. The mindset of the brother changing and it's like he doesn't try to become selfish and think for himself but it they do show him like oh i'm gonna eat food first and then bring stuff back to my sister and the fact that it's just there's just nothing they can do and that's what's so sad a -hmm. lot of kids starved and died during this time period and in war in general it's Not a happy movie. The first time I started really kind of feeling the gut punch was the scene where Setsuko tells her brother that like she already knows that their mom is dead. Something about that and just knowing how the aunt was treating them. Yeah. It made that reveal all the more uh, crushing. Like, oh, no, you weren't supposed to know that until, like, oh, that just hurt. Imagine finding out through someone else that one of your relatives passed away and that someone close was, like, kind of spinning a different narrative. Like, that would just sting a lot. For one of Takahata's earlier films, 
you can see a lot of his design decisions within it because he does that thing that I think we talked about when we talked about only yesterday where he puts a little more details on the characters' faces, mm-hmm. like dimples and such. Like he puts like the lines around the mouth. It's just a time capsule of a film to see because from what I remember, Grave of the Fireflies was not a huge hit. Like it did moderately well in Japan, but unfortunately, at that same time, Miyazaki put out My Neighbor Totoro. Oh, and guess which movie? one audience is over more the grave of the fireflies may have been more critically acclaimed but my neighbor totoro was critically acclaimed and a financial hit and i feel like that's always been kind of the i mean i don't want to say there was any underlying drama with takahata and miyazaki because i don't know but there was always sometimes this notion that takahata was constantly chasing after Miyazaki because Miyazaki was the one getting all the praise around the world while Takahata was like, I'm making great movies too. And he was. It's just his films got overshadowed by the more widely approachable and unfortunately like more readily available Miyazaki flicks. Yeah, about that. So from what I understand, the reason why Grave of the Fireflies is not on HBO Max with the rest of the Ghibli library, is that this is the one film that had no involvement from Ghibli's owner at the time, Takuma Shoten. This was actually under a different uh, studio. Well, it was under Toho. And because of that, it was not included in the main Ghibli bundle. For right now... Grave of the Fireflies is in this weird distribution copyright deadlock of Sentai Filmworks owns Grave of the Fireflies, or at least the U.S. distribution and home release of it. They even put out a nice new version of it back in 2012 with a new dub and such. But G-Kids can put it out in theaters, but for some reason, Grave of the Fireflies is the one movie that is not on HBO Max. And I understand there's just a lot of legal copyright stuff, but it's always kind of odd when it's like, oh yeah, we got all the Ghibli movies on HBO Max. And it's like, nah, no, you don't. (laughs) I'm curious as to why G-Kids has not just full on bought it so they can put it on HBO Max or something. I'm curious to know if there is just like why Toonami can't air Demon Slayer kind of thing where it's like, oh, it, it's just too expensive. Money could be could be a factor or because it's under a different parent company in Japan, the rights are just kind of awkward and weird. Copyright stuff is nonsense, kids. <laughs> but getting back to the film itself, I've kind of hammered this quite a bit on social media where if you don't cry at least once, while watching this movie. I mean, I understand if you are someone who is not in the mood to watch an extremely depressing film, I get why you wouldn't want to watch it. It's kind of a hard one to watch, not because it's intensely graphic. It's more emotionally exhausting in a good way because it's a touching and really sad story. I did cry at the very end or near the end and 
how just the writing was on the wall for for these kids and I know it does end on a pseudo optimistic note of just like, yes, Japan will rebuild and they have, but it's still a pretty downer film. I wouldn't call it more optimistic than say in this corner of the world, which takes place a little bit before the bombings happen and during the bombings. It's very interesting. We have, there's like this little like series of films that and animated films on top of that, that follow the world war two time period. And they all tell extremely different stories. Since we are still dealing with the nonsense that the Oscars were with the whole, like, we actually do not love movies and we treat the animation industry like garbage. And that one interview that popped up with Gindy Tartakovsky where he was offered a live action film to work on and the person told him, so you're ready to graduate? And Gindy just said, like, screw you and walked out (laughs) i mean like this is one of those prime examples of if you hear some knuckleheads say animation is just for kids shove this film in their face you can get it on amazon for 15 bucks (laughs) it's just a great movie it's not my favorite isao takahata film i still heavily prefer only yesterday but it's more of a taste thing I i like a movie where I feel like, yeah, I can rewatch that again. That's fair. This is just one of those films where I will watch it again. I will own the Blu-ray of it. I just haven't pulled the trigger yet to do so. But it is definitely one of those films that you don't really want to rewatch unless you're just in that exact mood to just be a blast case of emotions, as Anchorman film would say. (laughs) I haven't seen Only Yesterday enough times to definitively call it my favorite but i would say just artistically this might be takahata's best clearly we're we're not done with the the ghibli journey yet because we have 11 more films plus a couple documentaries we'll have to see where we land on that would you like to spin the wheel now let's do it now what the hell all right ghibli wheel let's see what you give us (laughs) oh i feel so bad about this Uh, We're going to watch the film that overshadowed Grave of the Fireflies. Next time, we'll be talking about My Neighbor Totoro. Oh, wow. (laughs) Weirdly specific. This happens all the time. We'll watch Castle in the Sky first. Oh, no. Now we'll watch Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. And then we'll time jump to his last or quote unquote last movie, The Wind Rises. And now we go from Grave of the Fireflies to Totoro. I love that we're doing this in a random order. That makes our journey so much more unique. Yeah, but in general, um, before we move on, Graver to Fireflies is a emotionally powerful experience. And if you are into wanting to dive into the wonderful and vast and unlimited world of animation, definitely put this one on your list. Just be ready to be emotionally wrecked. Take a ride on the pain train. (laughs) I concur with the guru on this one. This isn't just a great animated movie. It's just a great film, period. And a great little story from a non-US perspective about World War II. I think more people should look into history that isn't our own. Agreed, agreed. So now let's change the mood a little. We're going all over the place. 
this episode <laughs> in terms of mood and tone. Because let's talk about close enough, quote unquote, season three. We are not entirely sure what the situation with this show is because, you know, with all that's going on with New Deal for animation, and we will not stop talking about that until they do get a new deal. They say it's season three, but are we sure it's actually season? <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Mike, since this might be the last time we talk about this show, or until season four, or the show changes its direction with what kind of experience it wants to be. What do you think about this third season? This season, I think what I like the most about it is a couple things. One, it's always fun to get more Candace, Candace-centric episodes, like Candace Candace Revolution, where she basically turns her kindergarten into Lord of the Flies. <laughs> All because she had pancakes for dinner. (laughs) I also like how they really like to play with like different scenarios. And some of these episodes are a lot weirder, a lot darker. Like the what like robots with benefits was gets pretty dark, like towards the second half. And then (laughs) the one clip from the one episode that like everyone is talking about is the Halloween special. Oh, yes. Halloween enough where Candace, surprise, surprise, is having a nightmare where she ends up leaving the show and finds herself roaming around the Cartoon Network studios. And, you know, given everything we know about, you know, New Deal for animation, but also knowing how long animation takes to develop, this was a scarily accurate depiction of how the sausage was made a delightfully meta episode and it's not like cartoon network based shows have never done this a lot of them do there's a great scene in one of the later seasons of steven universe where they go to i think it's korea and they're looking at this one person animating and uh steven's dad looks over and he realizes that (laughs) that person's animating the show And he's just like, okay, let's move on. (laughs) All in visual storytelling, of course. But with this show, it keeps running with the idea of we're going to take something that's relatable and mundane to young adults and then just tweak it just slightly for it to become chaotic. Yep. And I liked a lot of the episodes in this batch. I love the Where the Buffalo Roam, where the whole notorious secret is not the island's has been overrun by bison is that the place sucks. (laughs) And I love the hell spittle. That was so good. Yeah. And, and it was nice to see another Randy based episode with Randy free solos. And it gives us a little more about him, which was very sweet. Even if he does end up, the one in an immense amount of pain by the end of the episode. Everyone is in pain this season. Yeah, everyone gets a little pain. But they do definitely give everyone a bit of a good emotional arc. Like with Bridget the Brain, uh, you find out that Bridget and her sister, Olivia, were pretty much forced to compete due to their mom making them like very competitive to one another. And gee, what is it with this year or just 
with the recent years where let's all unload our generational familial trauma. <laughs> oh, it's a common theme and I love it. <laughs> Just because it does help tell a good story. It's like that SpongeBob meme where he's like, like from the SpongeBob movie where he's like yelling because, you know, in that scene in context, he thought he was going to be the manager at the Krusty Krab. It's like, yes, I love stories about generational familial trauma. I cannot get enough of it. <laughs> and, but then it goes into, into like extremely weird situations like Alex meeting his favorite author who's delightfully voiced by Brian Blessed. And then it turns into like, oh, this guy has been around for a millennium. He's at a, who's that villain from Justice League or from the DC universe? That oh, Vandal Savage. Yes. <laughs> he's, been, he's like Vandal Savage meets Captain Ginyu. Yeah. And I think what's one of the more interesting takeaways from this season, not that the other characters aren't great or don't have their own little story arcs and such. This season really, really liked to focus on Alex. I noticed that. Alex got a lot more tension. I love Jason Manzoukas. He's hilarious, and this role was, like, pitched right at the plate for him. I'm sure it's one of those things where it's like, I'm going to make this character Alex, and you're not supposed to have a high hope of, like, who you're going to get to voice your character. Like, it's not your dream character role. But then... Uh, Quintel was lucky to get Jason Manzoukas. Like it was like made for him. But throughout this season, we learn about his fear of hospitals and and like his connection with his dad, who is voiced by Henry Winkler. You are never getting away from us, Henry Winkler. I can spot you from a crowd. Well, a voiceover crowd. <laughs> and then we also have like his struggling like job and like what he wants to do for the future and then we get into stuff like the bike and survive stuff where of course it's a little funny that he gets enrolled into helping an alien race get off uh, planet earth through the help of those multiple uh workout bikes with the tv screen with the instructor yelling at you <laughs> that is the whole gag of it's not a cult it's a lifestyle you're literally reading the signs no i'm not these are my own independent thoughts and then the next sign is these are my own independent thoughts ah. you know they continue this from the previous seasons of the whole will bridget and alex get back together they did not have a healthy relationship in some regards, but it's pretty obvious that they still care for one another because they do these stories every once in a while, or at least once with every season where like Alex is jealous when Bridget gets like a good dating life situation going on. And then Bridget doesn't like it when he's in a better dating life as well. Even when he literally almost gets hitched with a goddess. <laughs> About that, kind of have to ask, do you think this episode positions itself well enough to be a series finale if we're like not going to see another season? Or, or is this just like the beginning of a new status quo? I'm not entirely sure. I don't think it's satisfying enough to be a series finale 
because as much as this season really liked Alex and Bridget, it's amusing that Josh and Emily are kind of given the back seats. Like, I granted, they're the grounded, normal couple of the show. You need that. I understand that. But they get very little development or little story beats for themselves. Like, Josh is still dealing with the fact that he wants to make video games for a living, but he absolutely can't. And he's stuck at, like, the worst day job ever. Yeah, though, how much does it suck that they're like, man, with a robot with benefits where they got rid of the robots only for the boss to tell them, like, I was going to promote y'all to managers of the robots division. Less hours and more pay. And it's just like, yeah, only tell us now after what happened. Thanks. Which is sadly understandable (laughs) and real. But I would like to see more of this show. Like, I think if they were going to go with a more story-driven stuff, I would like them to start doing that maybe. I mean, like, not make an entire uh, season story-based. But at the same time, how many times can you do the whole will-they-won't-they with... Bridget and Alex or not do a whole lot with Josh and Emily. I hear what you're saying. That's why in a perfect world, we would hear about a season four within the next couple months. I still remember finding out that we were getting a third quote unquote season, you know, getting excited because that meant, or at least it was made to look as if this show was a hit. I'm sure the show is moderately successful on HBO Max. I mean, successful enough that it is now apparently airing on TBS, which is ironic considering the show is supposed to be a TBS original, but then their animation block got dissolved. It's a whole long story, but what I'm trying to say is I would love it if we got more of Close Enough, but at the same time, if this was the end, Yeah, match made in Valhalla may not be the most satisfying finale. I'm still satisfied with what we've had so far. I am too. This has been one of the more likable and endearing adult animated comedies. Because I know everyone is getting really sick and tired of the, oh, we're going to borrow from Family Guy and South Park brand of animated comedies instead of doing what close enough and inside job or arcane or Vox Machina are doing where they're showing all the different flavors of adult animation. I think they'd be doing a disservice if they cancel close enough. Now it would be really crummy because this is one of their biggest hits for the service. I think that would be unfair to Quintel and You really don't want to piss off your show creators and showrunners because I'll go to a streaming service or check out a show because of the person, not because of the service. Exactly. That should be common, but it's like, you know, it needs to be said that like you like the show, not because it's on HBO Max, but because it's Quintel 
bringing the same energy that he brought with regular show, but with young adults. Exactly. Yes, I do agree with a lot of people who say HBO Max has a terrible user interface. And I am really hoping that now that the merger between WB and Discovery is closed, that they can maybe fix that in the future. We'll have to see. Mergers aren't always great. Granted, I'm glad I don't don't need to pay for another streaming service since all the Discovery Plus stuff is going to be on HBO Max, apparently. But still, with all the layoffs, that's going to be a real bummer. And we'll just have to see what the future holds. Hopefully, we get a season four announced very soon. It's kind of amazing that when we got the quote-unquote season three trailer, there wasn't like an instant saying like, oh, hey, we're, we got season four as well. That's what happened with season two. We got season two and then it was confirmed right when that trailer dropped, we're getting a season three. I kind of like how they're seemingly taking their time. Apparently a lot of shady stuff happens with animation production in Hollywood. So hopefully they are going to get renewed and they take their time and we'll see the gang of close enough in 2023. But for now, we'll just have to see. But it's still a great show. It brings in the laughs. It brings the heart. It does a lot of what most adult animated comedies like Fairview are failing to do. This is definitely the more, it comes from a place of sincerity rather than cynicism. And I think we need more adult animated series with that mindset. And just in general, like cynicism is... A cynical mindset is just not fun to be around. It's that notion of like, oh, I love the snarky smart aleck character. And it's like, so you like the character who's a constant a-hole or a constant jerk to everyone else because he's smart aleck and because you think being nice and kind and sincere is quote-unquote fake so we need people to take from shows like close enough and just be sincere have fun don't try to ride the coattails of everyone else because if we wanted a certain show we can just change the channel or change the streaming service and get that show Exactly. Now, enough talking about the future. Let's talk about the past, specifically Richard Linklater's childhood or a loose version of that. This is Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood set around the launch of Apollo 11. A man narrates stories of his life as a 10 year old boy in 1969 Houston, weaving tales of nostalgia with a fantastical account of a journey to the moon. God, this movie is so good. As long as I've been reviewing movies online, I've always been an easy mark for Richard Linklater. But something about this movie, it hit a very specific sweet spot. It has like that same laid back childlike innocence of movies like Boyhood, School of Rock, and Everybody Wants Some combined with the artistic experimentation of Waking Life and Walt with Bashir. And when you combine those two elements, 
you make something really special. Yeah, so a quick heads up. If you have not watched this film yet, which unfortunately Netflix kind of buried and also that got overshadowed at during South by Southwest because of like everything else I was playing there because I was the festival also had like everything everywhere all at once. And it also had uh, the new Nicolas Cage film. So <laughs> a lot happened during South by and you would think a Richard Linklater film would be top priority it is sadly wasn't for some reason, which is a shame. I also think that the trailer for Apollo 10 and a half is a touch misleading. Like it's not really about, oh, they're sending a kid into outer space. It's more about Stanley, the main character, growing up during the big space race of the 1960s and everything that revolved around it from pop culture like how many space movies and shows we got and the politics around it of being like of course the first nation to go to the moon and of course they has small little parts of just like how the black community felt about like how much money was going into the space program if you've ever watched Lovecraft Country and heard the uh, Whitey's on the Moon uh, poetry slam, a lot of that is, is a reference to the Apollo 11 launch. It's like a lot of stuff is happening and it's awful, but Whitey's on the Moon. It's more of just the mindset of a kid during this time period. And it's more of an experience movie. It doesn't have a, a three or five act structure of a story. It's more about here's what my childhood was like. I grew up during the big Apollo 11 launch. And this is what I remember from that time period. And my with like everything around me and my family. It's a hangout movie, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I think there is a real charm to those kind of movies. I think you have to be extremely careful because a lot of this is definitely from Linklater's childhood and what he remembers. But I think there is a real like universal charm to it, even if you are not the demographic. It's like, okay, you did not grow up during the 1960s. I'm sure everyone has a childhood time period where they remember exactly what was going on during that time from pop culture, like growing up during nine 11 and such. Mm -hmm. Like everyone is going to have that kind of story, that kind of frame of like what their childhood was like. And unfortunately, like if you did come into this movie, wanting to see the whole like NASA launching a kid in the space kind of thing, that's more of a, a dream that Stanley has than anything that really happens. It's just that wouldn't it have been cool to be a kid and then NASA agents come to your school, find you and say, hey, we want you to help us with a space mission. That's actually one question I had. Like, Even in universe, the whole Stanley gets launched to the moon. Even in, in the context of the film, that was just all complete fantasy. I think it was complete fantasy. Because they do show 
when the moon landing is on television, they clearly see that Stanley is asleep. Yeah, so I think it is a dream. We kind of get this from Stanley early on in a film where he was a, what did he call him? A, a consistent liar. They called him a uh, fabulist. <laughs> because he would lie about what his dad's actual job at NASA was. And even like the dad was just like, yeah, I make sure all the trajectory and the direction of where the space shuttle is going to land is going to be. You can go this way and it will be as easy as pie. Of course, you know, Kyle in Florida takes care of all that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really like, like, even though this movie and story is not really about character development, I think what helps it is that the characters are likable. Once again, like with like the approach of like what Hasoda does with family members and such, I think everyone has had this kind of family or this group of friends or siblings or even parents. Oh, yep. My parents are baby boomers. My dad was born in 1960 and my mom, 62. My mom is one of like either 10 or 11 children. This family kind of felt like a kind of combination of my mom and my dad's. That's what made this family so relatable. Just because like they didn't grow up in Texas, it felt like I was, you know, a fly on the wall during my parents' childhood. And it was just a different time period. It's, I know it's kind of eye rolling and corny to say like the past was very different or, you know, this is what it was like back in the uh, quote-unquote good old days, even though the film is also like, oh yeah, there was this constant war and the threat of nuclear fallout. It's horrifying, but as a kid, that didn't really hit me <laughs> as much as it should have, except for my sibling who was older than me and was more in touch with the zeitgeist. There were these small little moments where... I could see my family there. It had a very natural humor to it all. Mm -hmm. I love that, like, when the neighborhood was put in and you see Stanley and his brothers helping their dad take some plywood to turn into a ping pong table. And it's just like, are we doing the right thing? Well, we could technically say that they we pay too much for the house. So this is just us getting even. <laughs> or like with the beer can in the car saying like this is the difference between white trash and rednecks white trash throws the can out the car rednecks throw the can on the ground in the car so does that mean we're rednecks no rednecks won't take the can out of the car when we get back home you're taking the cans out of the car <laughs> the dad had some of the best lines. I love Dad was you know. so good. I was doing a little bit of research on the cast and both the parents, Lee Eddy and Bill Wise, are both like pretty prominent anime voice actors too. It's just kind of cool how Linklater didn't really cast a lot of celebrities to play the family. Really just Jack Black doing the narration, Glenn Powell and Zachary Levi as like the NASA recruits. But then everyone else is like a relative um, unknown. I'm sure they're all like local actors around Texas. I'm pretty sure about that. And there are just these little moments that brings me like, like a smile to my face. 
I love when they introduce the grandparents on both sides, like how one side of the grandparents, like the grandfather saves everything because they lived through the depression. My grandparents lived through the depression. My grandma like refuses to throw anything away. Like still has like, like a couple uh, utensils that she's had since like the sixties. It's interesting to see though, man. Or like when they went to with the grandmother to go see the sound of music. And it's just like, I don't know if they just kept re-releasing the film or something about that. <laughs> because, you know, there wasn't really a, a rule about that. I was like, hey, we can just re-release films whenever, as many times as we want. It's like that uh, scene in The Deuce where three of the characters are in the diner and they're talking about like, man, nothing's been going on. So I just went to the movie theater and watched Fantasia. <laughs> which was interesting because this is around the same time i mean granted it was the 70s but still and i loved when they go at like to the university and they're all just like the worst thing ever were apparently hippies <laughs> is that a hippie yeah that's a hippie what about them he had hairs not long enough <laughs> but they're wearing uh, bell bottom jeans okay definitely a hippie locks the car it's like jesus <laughs> Yeah, come on. And then uh, all of those, uh, the TV sections were some of my favorite where they would just list off all the shows. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen about half of these when I was growing up. And I love that little detail of like, oh, yeah, and all those shows that I remember that only lasted a season. And I'm like, yes, there are so many shows I can remember. Maybe not the title of, but I remember them being like one and done like or one hit wonder kind of things there were a bevy of those the part that I, I really liked was when the family was all gathered watching the twilight zone which is something we kind of do every year on new year's right uh, right and then there was the like the, the saturday night monster movies the wonderful world of color that was the old name of the wonderful world of disney right right all of those like very specific pop culture references in other movies would have made like the movie feel dated but here this like this is coming from a more genuine place of nostalgia it's so charming it is it's far back enough to where it really was just one of the last big technological booms and like major historical time periods until of course later on but still i felt like this was it this was everything of course, this was before we got video games and such, where bowling alleys and pinball arcades were the only game in town for entertainment outside of the movie theater and such. Or like the family dinners where it's like we'd have laced ham on Sunday, ham casserole on Monday, ham sandwiches on Tuesday, and then navy bean soup with the leftover ham. Or like with the, the family making like lunches for the kids. Or the wonder and amazement of a Baskin Robbins and their 31 flavors. We make that joke all the time of just like, oh yeah, all 31 flavors or in Justice League Unlimited where the question's like, aha, 32 flavors. I mean, like, it sounds like a cop-out by saying it was a different time, but it was a different time. This was like the most exciting thing for a kid back then. Going to like a theme park or going to like the pool and getting popsicles that may or may not rip some stuff off your tongue or playing all those different games 
especially Red Rover, which definitely by the time I was old enough to play that game, nobody was really playing that game. Good reason, too, from what we see in the movie. That was the most shockingly graphic arm break. Yeah, I was not expecting that. It was very brutal for a a childhood game. Oh, gosh, that that was brutal. I have to turn away every time I see that. (laughs) It just shows I'm still kind of squeamish about certain things. But it also touched upon stuff like, oh, yeah, the paddle. Thank God we grew out of that. Yikes. (laughs) There's really not much else to talk about. I mean, like the rotoscope animation is fantastic. It's the most polished that Linklater has used. And of course, you know, that's because of modern technology and all that jazz. But I was never quite distracted with it that a lot of people are with rotoscope. I was more distracted by Spine of the Night than this one. And I think it's because this one has a more distinct art style, which was supposedly based off of the 1960s era of cartoons, which you can kind of see. But to me, I'm just kind of like, this is just like the idea of what a 60s cartoon looks like. What helps in terms of the rotoscope animation here is that we're looking at events through a child's perspective because it's through a kind of rose-colored lens. I mean, not completely. They still talk about the bad stuff, but it helps a little bit with the believability of it all. It helps that like the animation's a lot smoother looking. It doesn't have that clunkiness that rotoscope has where it's like, oh, right. Humans move around a lot more than we kind of give ourselves credit for. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing with animation. You can go as detailed or as limited as you want with the animation. But with rotoscope, since you're essentially tracing over, watch out for those small details and such. And I was fairly impressed that they didn't fall into the trap of oh, these look exactly like the celebrities, so it's distracting. Even, like, Zachary Levi didn't, like, it wasn't just, like, a one-on-one comparison with like, his character. He still looks, like, recognizable. Yeah. But but it's never a distraction. He's just like, oh, yeah, I'm playing a character. Even, like, Bill Wise looked more like Patton Oswalt than... I honestly thought it was... Patton Oswalt at first until I actually looked up the credits. It's so interesting. And I like that they keep a lot of the whimsy. It it sounds weird using this word right after whimsy, but grounded. It's really just the dream sequence of Stanley training at NASA and then going to the moon. It's not like a scanner darkly or the more rough and abstract version of awaking life. It's a very polished overall look to the visuals and of course we can't talk about this movie without its soundtrack and it's of course amazing classic rock songs left and right i had a smile on my face when i heard credence clearwater because my dad was a huge fan he basically wore out the tapes that he had playing credence with his friends and i do love that song that down on the corner and hearing what essentially became or like the took reference of the twilight zone song being played when the nasa officials arrived the soundtrack while nostalgic 
did not feel distracting. It felt like these were just songs that these kids would just naturally listen to. Right, right. I will say this is a very funny movie. Like you wouldn't think it would be funny, but it is. It just has a lot more subtle humor. Like I love when the boys are all in one room and then the dad comes in, takes the drawer out of a shelf out, takes the playboys out of there. And the kids are just like, huh. He doesn't even scold them. He takes the magazines, leaves, and then they're all just thinking, uh, okay. Okay, who ratted us out? (laughs) Or uh, I love when they're at the Baskin Robbins and the brother, it's just like vanilla. And the sister's giving him a hard time to saying like, really, vanilla. Like being so dramatic. Out of all the 31 flavors, you want vanilla. And he's just like, yeah, I just want vanilla. Okay, then. (laughs) oh it's definitely a very different vibe for an animated film and uh, once again it shows that animation is so distinct and vibrant it's one of those films that you put on to show that it's not all just whatever wacky nonsense is being put on screen for tv or film it told a very charming nostalgic without being cynical story. And even ends on a more positive note of just NASA put a bunch of people in space and y'all are awesome. And here's to y'all future astronauts (laughs) and such. It was a very nice ending, even though I understand that people may have wanted more of the, uh, we're launching a kid in a space, like uh, the storyline. Like I understand that criticism. I can see where they're coming from at least solely based on what the trailer was um, advertising. I can understand why, like, maybe people who aren't as familiar with Richard Linklater's films would, like, assume that that was going to be the A plot. It's not even like a B plot. It's more like a C plot. The A and B plot are just the reminiscing about what time was like back then and just how it was being a kid. But the reason why I can understand people's disappointment is because Linklater has done more, you know, traditional family films like School of Rock and The Bad News Bears. But you can also kind of tell his bread and butter is more the hangout movies like Days and Confused or Everybody Wants Some. Right. He does better with more just smaller scale character based experiences. And that's not a bad thing. I, but I understand if you are not in the mood to watch that kind of movie. And now I'm just kind of thinking about School of Rock. I rewatched that movie recently and I was just like, yeah, that was a really good movie. <laughs> I think every single one of Linklater's movies where Jack Black is involved I've given a five out of five. I don't know when the last time you watched Bernie was, but that movie is weird, very off kilter. But if you can get on its wavelength, it's it's just incredible. Yeah, no, I don't think I've seen that one yet. Is that the one with Matthew McConaughey also? Yes. Yeah, I, I've seen the trailer then. Just haven't seen the movie itself, though I definitely want to. But it's also just like, I like seeing Glenn Powell and Zachary Levi when they were just working, like convincing Stanley to come to NASA with them. <laughs> Stanley just kind of be quite asking, like, how did you mess up making a slightly smaller Apollo spacecraft? Okay, so you're good at math, right? Yes. And But you don't get it 100% all the time. Yes. Well, 
that's the situation we're in. <laughs> There's just some, just a very nice vibe with the acting that makes it this like nostalgia trip a lot more tolerable than a lot of the other times where it's just like, man, they just don't do things like they do in the good old days. And then we all roll our eyes and hope it doesn't get nominated for much at the Oscars. This isn't necessarily a like a modeling depiction of the 60s. It's it's a little bit more on the the authentic side, which I appreciate. Yeah, it's the quote unquote authentic. I really like this movie. It's not my second favorite animated film. It's my third. Princess Dragon isn't up there. I really hope he Someone picks up Princess Dragon. That movie was great. Top five for right. It's in my top five as well. It's as far as just animation, it's trailing behind Turning Red. It's sandwiched in between Turning Red and Sing a Bit of Harmony. I definitely recommend it if y'all haven't watched this film already. As for my recommendation, we could talk about Sonic the Hedgehog. I specifically want to recommend the Sonic Set AM animated series from the 90s not the wacky cartoon yeah not that... the looney tunes inspired one but the the second one where jim cummings played a very intimidating dr robotnik and charlie adler was like his henchman and they also had like rob paulson and really good yeah. voice cast for back then this show was pretty much like on the same level as like gargoyles and batman the animated series well to a lesser degree, but it shares a lot of that DNA. It's only 26 episodes. I don't know where exactly it's streaming, but if you can find it, you should definitely seek it out. It has a very subtle environmental message because the whole plot is Robotnik is turning animals into robots and destroying their home. This is one you should definitely check out if you haven't seen it already. Right on. I remember catching both the original like zanier cartoony version of the of Sonic and Sonic Sat AM. I was extremely thankful not to see Sonic Underground. I've only seen the pilot of Underground. It's fine. It's like clearly a step down from Sat AM. Oh, it's like a huge step down, especially since Sat AM ends on a cliffhanger, which was either going to be Metal Sonic or Knuckles. And it's just so cruel. <laughs> so I'm going to continue on with the anime recommendations because I was hoping that the spring season was still going to be strong. Oh my goodness, it's still extremely strong. Even the weaker shows are better than the worst are the most mediocre shows from previous seasons. And that's saying something because we have like 29 or so new anime. It was hard to pick one specifically, like because I had to choose between like Shikimori's Not Just a Cutie. There's also like Ao Ashi, which is the first good soccer anime of the season or of the year. So, and this is going to be a year where we get like four or five of them. There's also like Dance, Dance, Dance Sewer, which is, of course, MAPPA and MAPPA Pay Your Animators, but you def have a team of people who know how to execute choreography and shots. That opening sequence, just, mwah, just fantastic. Then there's also like Don't Hurt Me, My Healer, which is a, a fantasy comedy where a knight is begrudgingly 
like teamed up with a healer elf who let's just say she's got a very smart aleck way of interacting with everyone and the chemistry between them is great we also have like the first major normal length golf anime with birdie wing golf girl story which is pretty good we have like healer girl which is one of the few original anime this season which just has beautiful animation and music a lot of the shows this season are going to either be on crunchyroll or high dive disney plus apparently has two of the shows but we are not entirely sure if they are doing the netflix jail situation because uh one of them already aired its first episode but only in japan so we're having to wait and see but since we're talking about like family and nostalgia this episode i'm going to recommend the imon which is a more grounded slice of life drama about a young man who returns to his uncle's pastry shop and ends up bonding with a young girl who is staying there for free after her father abandoned her there. It's all about connecting a found family together. Really sweet. It has beautiful animation. The sweets look amazing. And the characters are all very likable. That does sound very wholesome. It's very wholesome. And there's just, like I just rattled off with a ton of shows this season, there's a lot of good stuff. It's not just oh, there are 10 shows. I think there are like maybe 15. I didn't even talk about Love at the World Domination, which is we are now two for two for Power Ranger parodies where Love at the World Domination is essentially what if the Red Ranger fell in love with the female villain? Oh, no. And it's essentially a very cute rom-com anime with some action elements but it's the Red Ranger and the uh, Villainess hiding their relationship from everyone. A lot of these titles sound very appealing. I think spring might be my most anticipated anime season. I remember last year's spring had a lot of goodies and this one sounded like it's going to be even stronger. When I can say that like, we don't really have a bad sports anime on our hands. That's when you know you're off the races. Like, even, like, the more, like, the worst show I can say is, or so far, is pretty much boring. At least a lot of the other ones have a concept that I like about them. But we'll talk about that more in May and as we uh, go down the anime recommendation ladder into May. All right. I don't want to give away exactly what we're doing next other than finally getting to my neighbor Totoro on the Ghibli journey. That'll be fun to talk about. But until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. I run my own website called Cam's Biz, where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Cam's If you like my work and want to support me in some way, shape, or form, you can go there. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. 
You can also find us on Podchaser and the Banana Meter. Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Mean to escape, so do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.